Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Christopher Phillips to talk about his new book, The New Math, A Political History. This came out in 2015, just this year, with the University of Chicago Press. Now, this is a book that takes us into the classrooms, the textbooks, the curricula of a period of American history that was really transformative on many, many levels. So it takes us into the Cold War context of the 1950s and the 1960s in order to understand a kind of series of curricular reforms called the new math. Now, in doing so, what Christopher does is opens up um, kind of a broader context of ways of understanding the relationship between mathematical practice, mathematical education, and what it was to be, to produce, and to discipline a modern American subject. So this is very much um, not only a history of science and a history of education, it's deeply a political history, and it locates um, that politics within some really interesting and unusual sources, um, i.e. the uh, classroom and the uh, textbook. And you'll hear in the background that that is the new books in STS cat, Habibna. And you'll hear her as well over the course of the interview. For some reason, she's been particularly excited about this book. And so um, she's in the background and you'll hear her occasionally meowing and singing and marking um, when she, I'm sure it's when she thought that Christopher was offering a particularly insightful or amusing anecdote and explanation. So on behalf of both my cat and myself, um, I hope you enjoy the book. I hope you have a chance to um, get your hands on it and take a look. It's a really, really interesting um, foray into the history of the U.S., the history of the Cold War, the history of math, and the history of education. And I hope that you enjoy the interview to come. Thanks so much, as always, for joining us. I'm here today to talk with Christopher Phillips about his new book, The New Math. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Christopher, and thanks for being with me today. Thanks for writing an awesome book, and thanks for making the time. Thank you so much for the invitation. Of course. So, Christopher, could you start us off, as is kind of traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about your background, and specifically, how did you come to work on the history of science and science education in particular? So I started, as I suspect many of us do, in a slightly different field. Uh, I started in mathematics, actually. And very quickly as an undergraduate, I realized that the most interesting questions to me were not the same questions that were interesting to most mathematicians. And so I gravitated gradually over the course of my undergraduate career and to start taking classes that enabled me to ask why mathematics has the kind of power it does, why people learn mathematics at all, why it's part of a liberal education, why it's part of a general education, why people think that learning mathematics is actually good for you, even if you never go on to practice mathematics. And those questions really motivated a lot of my initial projects. And so I looked at cases in, say, early Victorian Britain, where learning mathematics was thought to be evidence of uh, general intelligence or a good way to promote a certain kind of moral or religious education. And through these kinds of projects, I stumbled upon the new math, which struck me as a great example of exactly this, a period where people thought that learning mathematics had really a relevance and importance far beyond just the potential to create mathematicians, that really learning mathematics could be a way to shape citizens. It could be a way to instill certain forms of mental discipline, of intellectual rigor, and that 
learning mathematics might actually serve a political purpose uh, and serve a, a much broader purpose than just, say, transmitting skills or training to people to be good at factoring polynomials. Great. So the book that we're talking about is, in fact, called The New Math, and it's a political history of this collection of curriculum reforms that we'll talk about in much more detail over the course of our conversation. Now, these were reform projects for listeners who might not be familiar um, with the general topic that were in the 1950s and 1960s that were partially sponsored by the National Science Foundation, or NSF, and that involved hundreds of mathematicians, of teachers, professors, parents, administrators, children, um, students at various levels. This was based on the idea that math should be taught as a component of intelligent citizenship. And what that means and how that means and what the implications of that were um, are all features that we'll talk about over the course of the chapters to come. So you've already said a little bit about how you came to the topic. Um, and in fact, a little bit earlier, we were talking about, um, before we started the interview, the fact that this actually started as a dissertation project. So can you say a little bit about that transition or transformation? Um, were there any major changes, for example, in how you were thinking about or structuring or conceptualizing the project from its instantiation as a dissertation to its instantiation as a book? Yes. I, well, I was lucky enough to have advisors in graduate school to encourage me to write a dissertation that was readable. And so it enabled me actually to not have to scrap everything when I was trying to think of how to transition uh, into a book project. But the main thing that needed to happen, and I really, this was came from more from me than from anyone else, is that I wanted to make sure I wasn't just talking to historians of science. I also wanted to be speaking to historians of education. I wanted to be speaking to mathematicians. I wanted to be speaking to curriculum designers, to bureaucrats who work on curriculum issues. I wanted to really be able to write a book that any teacher who had any role in the new math would find engaging and interesting. And so a lot of the work that went into editing was to try and expand the audience, to try and take the work I had done and to think about the questions that people from different disciplines or people with different backgrounds might ask about the uh, particular topic. And so a lot of the conceptual thinking was to try and move beyond uh, speaking to historians of science and, and speaking within a uh, history of science literature and actually speaking to multiple literatures and across different disciplines. That was the main, that was my main goal in, in transitioning from a dissertation project to a book project. Now, let's get into the body of the book, right? Now, all of the chapters engage an idea that I want to kind of start out by asking you to, to talk a little bit about or to open up a little bit for us, and this is the idea of the subject. Chapter one, the introduction, is also subtitled The American Subject. Now, you end that chapter by mentioning that this title this idea of the subject and the American subject specifically refers both to math, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more, or a lot a bit more, actually, about that in the moments to come. But it also refers to the students who were meant to be disciplined through math education. Now, this didn't initially start specifically with the new math. You start more broadly, um, and we'll talk about that as well. But can you maybe take us into this idea by, by talking about this idea of subjectivity? The, the word subject comes up in, I think, all of the um, chapter titles, right? It does. <laughs> How does the idea of, su of the subject and of subjectivity for you animate what you're trying to do in the book? Well, I wanted to emphasize that learning math was never just about acquiring a certain kind of uh, subject material, that, that it was not a, a subject that was uh, could be thought of as a set of facts and a list of rules, but rather that learning mathematics was also about transforming the self and both opponents and proponents of the curriculum talked about it this way, that you evaluated the math curriculum on the basis of how it transformed the students who were learning it. And the 
the connection to me at least is based in a, a very old idea that learning math is good for the mind it's the discipline that disciplines it's the discipline that enables you to think better in all sorts of ways uh, whether it's uh, grocery shopping or whether it's making complicated decisions at work or whether it's uh, being a good person learning mathematics is one of the ways that you enable yourself uh, to become a better person, a better subject. And so the, 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 the pun, I suppose, or the play on subject was meant that we think of a group of subjects that we learn in school, a group of subjects that's within a textbook. But the people writing the textbook also thought of the ways those subjects would transform the subjects in the classroom, would actually enable students to transform themselves by learning the discipline of mathematics. And I, I want to be clear that mathematics is not the only discipline that uh, is believed to have this kind of effect. That, in fact, there's a number of different, different dif- disciplines at various times throughout the 20th century and throughout uh, the history of education that have been thought to transform people to make them better, say, or to make them more rigorous uh, thinkers. But mathematics, I argue at least is still one of the most powerful ways we have of shaping people's uh, intellectual rigor of, of, of really training them to think well. And partly that's because we assume that learning math means learning to think. And one of the ways we can think about this is just if you're a high school student who's amazing at mathematics, you become a genius. If you're a high school student who's a great poet, you're just a great poet. That's all you are. Uh, and, and this this kind of assumption, this presumption about the nature of mathematical knowledge means all kinds of uh, has all kinds of interesting implications, I think, for the way we talk about the kinds of problems that get put into textbooks or the kinds of theories that that are a part of math education. So if you think learning math means learning to think, then the pedagogical choices you make about designing math textbook become simultaneously choices about the sort of people who are going to result from learning that particular, uh, learning from that particular textbook. You know, that point about math or being a genius in a high school, being, a, uh, being equated with being a math genius is totally true, right? So I, you know, <laughs> personal aside, I got um, to a point where I almost dropped out of high school. And one of the, you know, I was just, you know, a, a high school student and an adolescent, whatever, you know, frustrated with the curriculum, wanted to just read great books. And I went into my um, guidance counselor and said, you know, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. I think I could learn more, you know, on my own. I want to just drop out of high school and, you know, maybe you know, do stuff on my own and go to college. And he said to me, you know, it's not like you're a math genius, like so-and-so. So why don't you just stick it out? I mean, you know, this assumption that, like, to be a genius was to be a math genius. So, yes, anyway, <laughs> outside of the aside, out of the parentheses, back to the main event. So in, in the book, in fact, you do you call the new math a technology of the self, right? To sort of pick up this thread of subjectivity and subjecthood. And this is in a wider context. So it wasn't just that the new math was a technology of the self, but rather this is in a larger context in which learning math in general is considered part of the liberal education of a citizen of a modern democratic society. And this is part of the broader context of the Cold War. So in the second chapter, you really bring us into this context and set the stage and give us the background for understanding how and when and why the new math specifically emerged as a particular way to affect um, this kind of ideal. Now, chapter two looks closely at the origins of federal support for curriculum development in general and for the projects of one group in particular in this Cold War context. Classrooms in this context were sites for Cold War politics. And in this context, critics were calling for a reform of the American math classroom specifically. So can you bring us into this context by talking a little bit about math in particular. So in what ways um, in this broader context and why um, was math education part specifically considered part of the um, kind of uh, technologies of making a modern democratic subject? 
I, th- that's a, it's an important question, and there's a number of different ways to answer it. One, one way to think about it is to recall that in the post-World War II period, mathematics had triumphed. Mathematics was part of the triumph of the so-called hard sciences that enabled us to win the war. And so if mathematics was part of that, and mathematics to a lot of scientists is central to their disciplines, increasingly central to their disciplines, in the mid-century post-war period, then learning mathematics becomes the gateway to being able to participate fully in the scientific, techno-scientific or scientific-slash-military establishment. And so partly, part of the story is that learning mathematics becomes an essential step to ensuring that there's enough uh, scientists, there's enough Uh, mathematicians, that the technology is good enough to actually have a chance of winning the Cold War or ensuring that we win the Cold War. So that's that's one whole strand of this, that that reforming science curriculum is a general theme throughout the 1950s and the 1960s, partly driven by the launch of Sputnik, partly driven by very old fears that we were falling behind. We're always falling behind in American education. We've been falling behind for 130 years. We'll probably continue to fall behind. And that that idea certainly takes shape over the course of this period. There's also another set of issues at play in the post-war period. And that's a, a critique that takes shape, I would say, over the course of the 1950s, in which people start to say that the problem with the schools is that there's not enough discipline. And discipline becomes this catchword. And discipline it means many things to many people. But one of the things it starts to mean here is how professors think and discipline being a way of describing the academic disciplines, the professional academic disciplines. And within these, mathematics uh, is really a powerful example of if you learn mathematics, then you learn to think like mathematicians and mathematicians think rigorously. So if the problem with the schools is an overemphasis on, say, progressive education and overemphasis on life adjustment education, where your goal is simply to prepare students for the kind of immediate problem that he or she will face after finishing school, then they miss out on this great tradition of disciplined rigorous, sometimes called liberal education, in favor of a much more narrow conception of, of what the schools and the curriculum might be for. So in my mind, these two strands of, of, of thought come together in shaping the new math as a, as a force where on one hand, there's a great deal of excitement and momentum behind uh, the problem of scientific manpower. And as a result, you get a great deal of financial support for programs that attempt to shape uh, science education generally. And on the other hand, mathematics as a way of approaching and knowing the world becomes a solution to, say, what's described as overly progressive, overly weak Um, Sometimes you have the language of soft, uh, which, of course, has many different resonances. But mathematics is the solution to these apparent problems. If you learn math, if you train somebody to be good at math, then you will not only ensure that there's enough uh, scientific uh, prowess within the country, but also ensure that people are thinking in the right way. And so it becomes a dual solution to these problems. So the school, math- the school Mathematics Study Group, or SMSG, emerges in this context. And since this is a really important group um, that recurs throughout the chapters of the book, can you introduce us to this? How, what is the nature of this group and how does it emerge out of the context that you've just been discussing? The School Mathematics Study Group is really one of many programs in this period that uh, sometimes go under the the nickname, the new math, which is more or less shorthand for new mathematics curricula. And so it's important that there's really no such thing as the new math. There's no one program that can be pointed to as the single uh, instantiation of the new math. And in fact, many of these reform groups have uh, contradictory goals in mind when they think about reforming the, the math curriculum. But I focused 
uh, heavily if, and nearly exclusively on SMSG for a couple of reasons. One was that it was funded entirely through National Science Foundation grants. And so it was a taxpayer-funded initiative. And that, that made it very interesting because you could then follow discussions at the level of Congress, at the level of the National Science Foundation, and see those enacted as part of a public taxpayer-funded effort to shape the citizenry. So that became an interesting aspect of it. I also focused on it, though, because it was the official program of the American Mathematical Society, of the professional mathematicians themselves. This was the anointed program. And so it come, came, to stood, came to stand, excuse me, for better or worse, as the official mathematics reform effort. And so its head, uh, a mathematician named Edward Beagle, uh, who was – at Yale and then moved to Stanford later in his career, for him, the School Mathematics Study Group was really the chance for professional mathematicians to show everybody how it should be done. And so the group itself sits at this very interesting uh, intersection between the efforts of professional mathematicians to step in after decades of being on the sidelines of curriculum reform to really step in and and weigh in on how the curriculum should be reformed. And at the same time, it stood for the federal government's initiative to shape the way students should learn mathematics, to shape the way uh, the, the textbooks, mathematics textbooks should be written. And so that's why SMSG, which is a, a kind of unfortunate uh, and, and clunky uh, acronym, but that's why SMSG takes such center, center stage for me in the story, is that it, it was the program that was supposed to say, this is what professional mathematics looks like, and this is why you should learn math in this way, and, and to do that for all Americans simultaneously. And why does the NSF choose the SMSG in particular um, to support, right? So what is it about their program that makes it seem particularly well-suited to be able to enact this mathematics as a form of um, practicing discipline and sort of um, creating autonomous, disciplined, healthy subjects? Why that group specifically? Well, for one thing, it's it's the group that's run by professional mathematicians. And so it's shaped by the NSF precisely to, to be run by professional mathematicians. And there was uh, one of the misconceptions of the new math, in fact, is that it's a, it's a program of progressives run amok. And in fact, it was exactly the opposite. It was a program that enabled the National Science Foundation to join with professional mathematicians to ensure that Programs run by teachers or by professors of education would not become the default uh, curriculum program or curriculum reform program. That's not to say that SMSG or the NSF wasn't interested in having the input of teachers. Far from it. In fact, uh, SMSG really went out of its way. The director, uh, Ed Beagle, went out of his way to include teachers and professors of education and administrators in roughly equal numbers with professional mathematicians on the writing teams. And this is a very, very, very unusual uh, structure for reform organizations and from curriculum design organizations. Organizations. But the, the short answer to your question is that the NSF uh, anointed SMSG largely because it fit with precisely what the NSF was, an organization of elite professional, uh, largely but not exclusively academic scientists and mathematicians. Great. Thank you so much. Now, we can learn a lot about what exactly the new math was proposing and what made it different or distinct from other modes of teaching mathematics by looking at its textbooks. And Chapter 3 does um, precisely that. And actually, we see textbooks recurring as a source base throughout the book as well. So Chapter 3 looks specifically at SMSG's textbooks. And it opens with a scene that analogizes or creates an analogy between mathematical knowledge and a city. That's a really interesting analogy, but one of the things that's um, perhaps most interesting about it for our purposes is that this is a metaphor that you show is ultimately developed in an article by Nicholas Bourbaki. So for listeners who might not be familiar with this name and with the, you know, sort of what this has to do with the larger argument, who, or more to the point, what was Bourbaki and what was Bourbaki's idea of what it meant to practice mathematics? 
So yeah, Nicholas Bourbaki is a, essentially a pseudonym for a well-known group of mathematicians, uh, largely French mathematicians who were trained at the École Normale Supérieure. And for these particular mathematicians, they really wanted to reformulate the whole idea of what it meant to do mathematics and what it meant to be a mathematician. And so over the course of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, they publish textbooks, they uh, hold seminars, they, they create a whole uh, sense of excitement around the idea that you can reformulate what it means to do mathematics in a, what they called a modern style. And so it had a number of different elements, but one of the elements was that structure should be at the center of what it means to do mathematics. And so they wanted to, for instance, eliminate a lot of uh, intuition or spatial intuition and the idea of, say, images or diagrams being important. Instead, replace it with axioms and structured axioms at the center of mathematical practice. This is uh, obviously an oversimplification. But part of part of what they wanted to do then was to shape what it would mean to master mathematics. And so the analogy that they propose uh, to the building of a city is that as cities build, you, you get the, all these little useless streets and alleys and they just add up and add up and add up. You have all these spaces within the city that don't go anywhere. And so if you're trying to go from the periphery to the center, if you're trying to get the core of the city, it's actually really annoying to go through all these uh, dead ends, to have to take all these slow and, and uncertain streets. And instead, what it means to be modern is that you you bulldoze and you pave over and you create these giant avenues which enable you to go from the periphery to the center directly. And that's how they envisioned their project. That's how they envisioned the idea of putting structure within mathematics is that you create ways to enable students to get to the core of what it means to do mathematics and, of course, to create more mathematics uh, more effectively. And now, by taking that analogy, by, by quoting from that analogy, a lot of the reformers then put themselves in this vein of what it means to do mathematics. And, and suffice it to say, this was not universally agreed upon as the way mathematics should be done. And so one of the, one of the ways I try and situate the textbooks themselves is to try and connect what goes on in these elementary, middle, and high school textbooks with these much larger – well, in some ways they're not larger, but there's certainly a very different debates that are going on among mathematicians. And, and so that's, that's part of the reason why I want to, to, create, to create that – image that w what it means to do mathematics is central to how you want to teach mathematics. And, and that's very, very important for these reformers. That's right. And the chapter actually looks at specific examples, and I'll just mark this for um, listeners, specific examples of how these ideas played out specifically in the way that algebra and geometry were taught as examples of mathematical reasoning, right? So um, in the spirit of this turn to understand and to teach mathematics, not as calculation, but as reasoning. And you give us some really interesting examples of that. But you've just mentioned that there was not widespread um, universal agreement about this among mathematicians. And you talk in this chapter as well about some of the divisions among mathematicians over um, these textbooks. So can you maybe talk about some of those major critiques of what was going on in these textbooks in this part of the story? What were people, um, or what were some of the most trenchant, important, or interesting um, for you critiques of this methodology? Well, one thing to, to note is that every mathematician thinks that students should learn mathematics, and every mathematician thinks that mathematics is useful. So those weren't actually part of the debate. And so the, the real question for the mathematicians, though, is what makes mathematics useful and what is mathematics such that it's so powerful and important in the world? And these turn out to be very complicated and uh, contentious uh, issues over the course of the 1950s and 1960s. And so there's a, in many ways an irony that at, at a period where 
Congress is willing to fund textbooks to be written that are emphasizing the true nature of mathematical knowledge, mathematicians themselves can't agree on what the true nature of mathematical knowledge really is. And I set out uh, the two sides in some ways by proxy, which is, which is to say that on one side you have Ed Beagle and, and his associate Marshall Stone, who's a famous mathematician from the University of Chicago, and they are, are really setting out the the case that mathematics is an abstract discipline. It's about structures. It's about self-consistency and coherence. It's about reasoning in its uh, quote-unquote purest form. And therefore, it's divorced largely from applications. It's divorced from say, a measurement or statistical understanding of the world. Those might be nice things you can do, but that's not fundamentally what mathematics is about. And then you have another group of mathematicians, uh, many of whom self-identify as applied mathematics, although it's important to note that implied mathematics in this period is a very contentious and and to a large extent, a kind of new term that's coming to refer to, to this other group of mathematicians. And they're not sure they want to take the idea of being applied mathematician because many of them think of themselves as just mathematicians. But in any case, this group of, of mathematicians and the for, for lack of a better term, one of the spokespeople of this is Morris Klein. And for people like Klein, the idea that mathematics is divorced from its application is wrong on many, many levels. For one thing, it, it ignores the history of mathematics. It ignores the way mathematics has arisen throughout time as deeply connected with questions about how we know and measure and model the world around us. For another thing, he thinks that it makes it boring. He thinks it actually makes it less interesting if you take away all the applications of mathematics and just turn it into a set of logical puzzles or a set of symbolic manipulations. Now, of course, the school mathematics study group people did not see themselves doing this. They saw it as a really fascinating and engaging attempt to get students to reason creatively and flexibly. But for someone like Morris Klein, if you take away the applications of mathematics, if you take away its roots, then you're left with this game, this meaningless game that is not really going to prepare students for the important questions that face them in the world. Go ahead. No, 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 go on. Uh, so, so I said it's, it's – on one hand, you could look at it as it's about pure versus applied, but I don't actually think that it's that simple. I think it's actually two different ideas about what gives math its power and its coherence. And what I found most interesting in writing this was that this debate played out in the context of how we should teach middle school mathematics, which is not a place that you think, first of all, mathematicians would care about, and second of all, that you think they'd actually – actually take interest in. But indeed, between around 1961 to 1965, this was a very live issue for mathematicians. And there were uh, heated letters posted and published. There were articles in the New York Times. And mathematicians, in many regards, were some of the first critics of the school mathematics study group effort, because they were the ones who, who didn't want Ed Beagle and Marshall Stone to be speaking for them. They didn't think that they that this should stand as the definitive idea of mathematical knowledge. Great. And there's one, I think, um, something that stands out to me immediately from that chapter. There's one proposal for learning math by recreating the mental development of the race. So <laughs> really interesting uh, proposals in there. So I'll <laughs> mark that for listeners. Um, right. So thank you so much. Um, so as we kind of move forward into the story, we look at, and uh, chapter four in particular, looks at textbooks that were used in elementary school pro- uh, programs. So these were actually quite different, um, or the issues at least um, resolved themselves in ways that were quite different from the example that we've been talking about before. Now we start here um, by situating ourselves in the broader context of Cold War anxiety about over-reliance on authority and sources of authority. And this discourse and this context was one in which scientific and mathematical education were linked with freedom and with the idea of free reasoning. 
So can you say a little bit about how the SMSG's textbook plans were intended to alleviate this worry? Um, how were these textbooks intending to speak to, and how did they, in fact, um, get read as speaking to these larger uh, questions and worries about freedom and authority? So mathematics is a curious discipline because it's supposed to be something that you can, well, I, I should say one of the stereotypes is that it's something where if you're on a desert island and all you have is your own mind, you could recreate mathematics. And if you have a textbook, you could recreate all of modern mathematics, say. And this this kind of stereotype that it is the essence of individual reasoning just doesn't fit well with another idea of mathematics, which is that it is the discipline of certain reliable, incontroversial incontroversible knowledge, essentially. And so I took the issue of, say, 2 plus 2 equals 4, which for philosophers uh, has long been an interesting question. And and actually, one of the things I did initially was situated in uh, George Orwell's uh, use of this 2 plus 2 equals 4, which is... 2 plus 2 equals 5! Exactly. (laughs) And we we don't think about that when we read the book, because it's so obvious to us that if you say 2 plus 2 equals 5, you must have lost all sense of internal freedom, of reasoning, of independence. You're a complete slave to authority. And indeed, that's how Orwell uses it. That, that's what's used to signify giving yourself up to Big Brother. And so this is, this is of the same era where, for me, it's a really important question. And, and although the textbook designers are not engaging with George Orwell in any explicit sense, you can't avoid this problem that you're designing a textbook that is supposed to enable students to reason freely and independently, and yet every single student has to come up with exactly the same answer to these mathematical questions. And so what what I try and characterize, the way I try and characterize mathematics is that it sits at this junction of what's necessary and what's creative or what's free. And so essentially, uh, to to oversimplify, you have to freely come to the conclusion that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And the way the textbook designers describe this is that you have to, to know things authoritatively without recourse to authority. And so whatever reason 2 plus 2 equals 4, it can't be because your teacher told you that two plus two equals four. That's a bad way to learn mathematics. And so if all you think of mathematics is that you're regurgitating what your teacher has told you, then we've lost the battle. And in fact, in, in this period, it doesn't take a giant leap to realize that there there is a boogeyman here, which is that you have an, an idea of a closed mind, a Soviet mind, a mind which is completely given over to uh, a kind of authoritarian um, precepts from above. And we can, I, I think, all agree that this is a stereotype, that, that there may or may not be much uh, much actual uh, relevance of the stereotype in practice in the Soviet Union. But for a lot of Americans in this period, the idea that you would train people to be slaves to authority, to, to have authoritarian personalities, this was a real worry. And mathematics is a perfect example of, of where this comes into play, because you need everyone in the class to say together, two plus two equals four. But you need each of them to have come to that knowledge freely, logically, democratically, independently, etc. And so that's the way I set up the problem of elementary education, because no one, no curriculum designer really talked about the fact that students were were not learning their, their addition tables or their times tables. That wasn't a problem. Students were learning how to do basic arithmetic, but they thought students were learning how to do basic arithmetic in the wrong way. And this goes back to this idea that if you think learning math counts as learning to think, then learning math in the wrong way means you're learning to think in the wrong way. That's right. Now, this actually manifests really, really interestingly in the case of um, the actual textbooks, in, in elementary school textbooks in particular. And you talk about the ways that set theoretic notation is introduced into elementary school textbooks as a way to kind of deal with this um, concern. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because it seems both really important and as we get to the end of the story and even beyond, this is one of the, it's going to be one of the legacies of the new math 
that um, people might have seen in their own, right, uh, elementary school um, textbooks of math from either their kids or their experience that they may not even connect with this historical context. So briefly put, set theoretical notation in elementary school textbooks. What's up with that? <laughs> well, this is actually one of the, 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 as you say, one of the persistent questions about the new math is if people remember anything about the actual content of the new math, they'll ask me about what's the empty set. I never did figure out what the empty <laughs> set was. And, and indeed, this was one of the aspects of the new math that was most visible to the parents who all of a sudden got these textbooks that not only did they not give the times tables or kind of basic tables of arithmetic, but then they, they asked you about disjoint sets and the union of sets. And so what happened to arithmetic in, in elementary mathematics. But it was actually a very conscious choice. And, and it was a choice that was based in the idea that if you teach people why we've designed arithmetic the way we've designed arithmetic, then they might come to know why two plus two equals four, not as a matter of force or of authority, was a mat but as a matter of creatively reconstructing that result from their knowledge of the choices, the axiomatic choices that went into it. And so I remember when I learned mathematics, I couldn't figure out why we had to learn all this stuff about identities and reflexivity. Right. And I thought A equals B and B equals A. Well, yeah, if A equals B, you know, and I couldn't figure out why we were doing it. But what these are is that they're remnants, they're the vestiges of a period where the idea was that if we teach students how to construct the reconstruct, I should say, the choices that went into uh, elementary arithmetic, then they'll be able to work out the rest on their own freely, logically, uh, and, and creatively, and of course, still get the right answer. They'll still get the two plus two equals four. And so set theory wasn't about uh, a kind of trying to make things complicated or even trying to make things rigorous. And so one of the things I'm, I'm careful to say is that this was not about making things exactly like professional mathematicians would do them, that, that they wanted to make things correct, which is to say mathematicians, professional mathematicians wouldn't disagree with how they're presenting the material. But it was not about replicating first year graduate course in mathematics, but rather it was the idea that Set theory enables you to really understand what addition means. It really understand what subtraction or division means, but also simultaneously to enable you to envision other worlds where, for instance, you might be adding together a finite set of numbers in modular arithmetic. Or you might be thinking about mathematics as manipulation of playing cards and about different states and about how if you move a playing card one way, you can move it back the other. And that means that a particular operation is, is um, undoable. You can, you, you can actually undo it. And so these things were very, very important for the mathematicians involved that, that students learn to think about mathematics as a way of manipulating, as a way of understanding, as a way of engaging with all sorts of concepts and all sorts of entities and that the usual arithmetic, the usual basic boring arithmetic was in fact just one of the things you could do with mathematics. And so set theory enabled them to do both those things, to reconstruct uh, the usual arithmetic that math, the students actually did learn to add and multiply. And you know, one of the stereotypes is that no one was interested in having students learn to add. This is not true, that all the mathematicians evolved absolutely wanted students to learn to add, multiply, divide, be comfortable with fractions, be good at decimals, all the tricky things we know. Uh, but at the same time, they thought that if they learned it this way, if they learned it the way mathematicians think about it, then that would actually enable them to construct mathematics as a logical, creative, flexible, fun enterprise, and not just as something that involves the regurgitation of facts and theorems uh, from teachers or from textbooks. Great. Now, once we have the new math, once we have these textbooks, how do we sell them? Chapter five looks at how some of these textbooks moved into American schoolrooms in the mid-60s, and then what happened uh, once they were there. Now, you set the stage really, I think, very, very helpfully in this chapter by starting to talk about and help us understand what the typical barriers to widespread curricular reform would have been, <coughs> 
excuse me, so that we can then understand how the SMSG overcame those barriers in order to get their materials actively in schools and make it possible for, you know, some of us to, for example, look at, um, or look at these examples that you have in the previous chapter of these set theoretical ways of teaching elementary math and think, oh yeah, you know, I remember that from my classroom. Well, how did they get there? It's actually a really interesting story. So can you talk um, for us a little bit about this context? What were the typical barriers um, to getting your stuff and your textbooks into schools in order to affect this kind of reform in American classrooms at the time? And what was the SMSG doing that worked for them in order to get their stuff actually in the hands of teachers and students? This is an, a really important point, and it's actually one of the things I cared a lot about because I feel like sometimes historians of science will write from the perspective of, say, curriculum designers, but will never actually figure out how those textbooks got out there in the world. And it turns out that the rhetoric of reform is very different than the practice of reform. And we sort of know this, but uh, one of the reasons why I picked the United States is, in fact, no central agency can just decree that all students will learn this on this particular day. It doesn't happen that actually there's no real single United States education system, that all the states have different systems. And within states, you have different systems for each district at certain times. And even sometimes within a single district, you'll have individual teachers or individual schools will have different programs. And so how in a system like this can you ever create large-scale reform? How can you change the way people learn mathematics in a system this decentralized? And this, I think, is a, is a, a really fundamental problem. And it, when, whenever I, I, I hear about a new reform, and certainly through this period, through the 1950s and 1960s, the best bet is that nothing consequential will happen. That, in fact, that schools choose not to update their textbooks, that teachers choose not to teach the new material, uh, that curriculum designers uh, will not get on the same page as the people who actually buy the curriculum for the districts, et cetera, et cetera. So really, I wanted to set out the chapter as asking the question, how in the world did this, this in, in many regards, kind of bizarre set of textbooks that look so different from the way people had learned mathematics actually make it into the classrooms? And I should note one of the additional problems was that Ed Beagle in the School Mathematics Study Group didn't actually want to create textbooks that would be commercially available. They were afraid that this would create a conflict of interest. It would make it look like the federal government was decreeing what students should learn. This is a point I want to make mainly because it, it, it speaks to some of the current controversies over standards and uh, various uh, federal national curriculum programs. But, but Beagle and, and, and his colleagues were very, very careful to to only design what were essentially throwaway books. They were books that had they were badly bound, they were badly printed, the images were awful. They were books that looked like they just were waiting to be replaced. And this was really part of their goal is to create models for the teachers to use. And so if they created these books and then allowed commercial publishers to steal freely from them. The hope was that you can change the way the commercial publishers are, are writing their math textbooks. And so they would serve really as model textbooks and not say like some other curriculum reform programs where they're creating slick, beautiful, hardbound textbooks that would then get purchased. Uh, this is a very different model. And one of the points that I made uh, that I think I, I didn't expect, I should say, going into this research was that the process for changing textbooks in the high schools is very different than the process for changing textbooks in the elementary schools in this period. And I had no idea that, that this was actually a, a very different thing. And for, for one, and probably most consequential, is that the school mathematics study group in the high schools worked very closely with high school teachers, with associations of high school math teachers. And the NSF-sponsored dozens of the uh, training sessions around the country to enable high school math teachers to come get trained in the new material, to learn the new material, so that when they uh, were able to take up the textbooks in their own classrooms, 
they would they would have not only an idea about what the textbook was trying to say, but about the mathematical choices that went into the textbook to really be able to teach it effectively. And School Mathematics Study Group had regional centers. They had testing centers. They they had giant working groups where they would have twenty to forty people writing a single test textbook. And the and this is for anyone who's ever worked on any committee ever, we're aware that this is not the most efficient way to get things done. But it enabled now you have forty people who know how this textbook works, and each of these forty people can go host uh, a particular uh, work uh, a particular seminar. And, and help train other teachers. And you can imagine the, the multiplying effect that this would have. Uh, and so for the high schools, it was really a re- resounding success in a lot of ways. They were able to train the teachers. They were able to get textbooks into the classrooms. They worked very closely with schools. And so it was – in, in, in large part, had, had the new math stopped after high schools, I think it would now be remembered as just a wildly successful uh, opportunity and attempt to improve the quality of high school education. It didn't stop there, though. Uh, and, and the reasons for this are, are in some ways, uh, unexpected, at least from the outside. But one of the things I've discovered is that whereas a high school teacher or a school or a district will adopt a particular math textbook, the elementary schools typically in this period would adopt things for every grade. So you would have dropped a textbook for all, say, K through five, all six grades. Now, this makes textbook adoption wildly more lucrative and more important uh, for individual districts and states. And so uh, you, you have a much smaller number of people taking high school mathematics at this point not every student is required to take high school mathematics. You actually have a much smaller number of people taking high school mathematics, a much larger number of people taking elementary mathematics, and you have this way of adopting textbooks en masse that creates a very different incentive. Moreover, elementary teachers are, are a whole different entity than high school teachers. They typically are generalist. They've typically had very little mathematics. They, there's a high turnover in elementary school teachers. And so for all these reasons, it's very, very hard to train uh, high, uh, elementary school teachers with new material. Mm-hmm. And then there's one last element of this, or one last one I can think of at the moment, which is that the school mathematics uh, study group really missed the boat on the elementary uh, mathematics reform. And so their own elementary reforms came uh, much later than a lot of other elementary reforms. And there, there's a, a number of reasons for this. Uh, but in any case, the upshot was that many school districts had already uh, adopted new math textbooks from various other sources. And one of the drivers of this, in my view, is that the textbook companies themselves realized that new math, that modern math, uh, was all of a sudden a new good way to market your materials. And so they started marketing, marketing materials that might not have been quite as well thought through as the School Mathematics Study Group materials that might have uh, been simply old material with a new cover put on it. Lots of different aspects went into it. But the the degree to which the most – I should say the most thoughtful and thorough programs could influence the elementary schools was much, much uh, smaller than in the high school setting. So in any case, the selling of the new math as as a practical matter was very different in these two settings. That's right. Thank you so much. And my cat, if you hear her meowing in the background, she also thinks that your explanation was particularly (laughs) cogent. So meow, meow, meow. That sounds great. So the new math, of course, failed, right? Or at least um, this is uh, one way of thinking about it. Of course, it's much more complex than that. But as we go into chapter six, we look at the crisis, um, the critics of, and the ultimate fall of the new math. Now, you make the point, this is very important, since this is a political history, that that fall, like its rise, was, as you put it, thoroughly political. Now, this is important to speak back to some um, possible explanations of why the new math fell, because as you put it here, it was rejected not because, or at least not solely because, um, simply of 
falling test scores or because students weren't learning to add, but instead because, as you put it, students were failing to be disciplined in the right way, right? So you talk here about um, the different reasons and the different um, uh, kind of uh, explanations for parents, teachers, and concerned citizens criticizing and complaining about the new math. Parents were complaining, for example, about unfamiliar math problems that their children were bringing home as part of their homework, and there are lots of other criticisms being tossed around. Now, in this context, there's an advocation of an alternative mode of training students that emphasized functional goals and rote memorization, and this was something that was associated with the back-to-basics movement. So in order to help us understand um, this sort of last stage of the book and ultimately the um, criticism and fall of the new math. Can you talk a little bit about this back-to-basics movement and um, sort of how this functions as a context ultimately for the fall of the new math? Yes, I I think one of the striking aspects is that both the critics who eventually emerged and the promoters agreed on one thing, which is that your evaluation of the curriculum depends on the way you think math should train students to think. And so there's a number of different uh, strands uh, that, that, that you mentioned at play here. But what I ultimately settle on as the most convincing explanation is that the original uh, sort of justification for the new math, that modern minds, that modern students, that students facing a complex technological world would need the math of elite mathematicians, would need an abstract, a structural, uh, a, uh, an academic approach to mathematics, was just no longer convincing by the early 1970s. It, it, it fell on deaf ears in many ways. Uh, you know, a lot of Americans by this point had started to doubt the efficacy of elites, uh, both federal and academic, to solve their problems. It sure didn't seem like they were solving their problems in other realms. Uh, they started to uh, doubt whether, in fact, they should have ceded so much power to central elites as opposed to the traditional sources of moral authority in their neighborhoods, their churches, uh, synagogues, uh, the the people they knew and trusted around them. And so the new math, in many regards, came to stand for an elite, top-down, academic, uh, abstract program in a time when a lot of Americans were turning to what they called basics, going back to basics. And this was a thorough uh, movement. I mean, it engaged people uh, all the way from the Ford Uh, advertising department in Ford automobiles uh, down through uh, English professors and math professors and, and of course, down to the the people I'm interested in, uh, the the critics of the new math. And broadly speaking, although I I must admit that Back to Basics is still a, a fairly poorly understood uh, movement. It was diffuse. It's, it's, it didn't have many uh, leaders. It had a lot of small leaders. It grew out of uh, a lot of local efforts, a kind of a, a traditionally what, what we now think of as a grassroots initiative uh, to take back control of the, of the curriculum and return it to basics. And by basics, they really did not mean the foundations of mathematics as mathematicians might have hoped, hoped, but they, by basics, they meant really uh, the, the rote learning, the, the kind of, um, in many cases, militaristic, but in other cases, just what were thought of as the building blocks, the essentials of, of learning mathematics. So learning the facts that went into it, learning the, the uh, routines for calculating, not learning about the nature of calculation, but actually how you calculate 49 times 54 and, and making sure you can do that reliably. And, and one of the ways of understanding this is that the fear of authoritarian uh, impulses had really decreased by this point to where 
when conservatives pushed for going back to basics, almost no one uh, called them out on the same critique that had been leveled 20 years earlier about the fact that this was not how free, democratic, modern citizens should reason. Mm-hmm. That this this some it no longer bore that uh, particular association uh, with, say, an authoritarian way of learning to think about mathematics or of thinking about mathematics, and so to a large extent, it's it's to my mind, I describe it at least in the book as, as ironic that what was a reaction in the 1950s to a potentially uh, progressive. Um, left-wing way of learning mathematics by bringing all these academic mathematicians by, by really focusing on how uh, academic mathematicians could take back control of the curriculum from teachers, then gets criticized for, for being soft, for actually not inculcating the fundamentals of mathematical practice less than two decades later. And I really do think this is evidence for how much uh, the country, the, the political uh, landscape has shifted by this point. And really, as I said, it's not a matter of whether or not learning mathematics is useful. It's not a matter of whether learning mathematics is good for the mind. It's still useful and it's still good for the mind, but how it it trains the mind and what kind of student should result, that's a very different matter by this point. And you can hear my cat Habibna's in the background being like, yes, I totally agree with you. I think she's actually trying to sing Tom Lehrer's song, The New Math, for you, and she's just not realizing that she doesn't speak English. Um, but I Better her than me. <laughs> so thank you so much. I mean, there's also an epilogue um, that takes us into the trajectory of math education after the fall of the new math. And as I mentioned kind of briefly before, um, many textbooks actually retained innovations that came from this new math movement, but didn't label them as such. And you talk about that in this epilogue. You also talk about, I think this is really important, the methodological importance of looking to school curricula for historical accounts of political change. So looking to classrooms and sort of curriculum materials and textbooks to observe um, the political history of a particular locality. You also talk about, and this is actually um, really interesting, so I'll just kind of mention this without asking you to, to go into too much detail, but you talk about the challenges in this case of using oral histories, right? Um, And this is, I think, just something that I wanted to mark because so much when we read um, modern histories, we read about the, you know, the joys and the benefits and the wonderful aspects of oral history for telling modern history. And I think you're offering us a really interesting counterpoint to um, ideas about the usefulness of oral histories for getting into and and really um, kind of understanding certain kinds of historical phenomena. So readers and listeners can find all of that in the epilogue. So Christopher, there's a lot that we talked about, um, but of course there's a ton that we didn't have a chance to get to. Is there anything specific that you'd like to mention for listeners and maybe especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Yeah, I think two things come to mind. One is just for, for those who are fundamentally uh, see themselves as kind of historians of science or aligned allies of history of science. One of the things I found is how rich a source the curriculum is for seeing how ideas that we're familiar with. So for instance, the, the rise of the expert, the kind of expert on tap over the course of the 1950s and 1960s, how that's actually received by the public. And that's a reception of these kinds of concepts is always a tricky thing. But one of the virtues of using the curriculum is that as attitude towards the curriculum changes, one of the ways you can track that is by seeing how much of a difference there is from the early to mid-1960s, where the new math was largely a successful, bipartisan, widely praised initiative of bringing rigorous science back into the classrooms. And then a decade later, it's seen as an overreach of academic science. It's seen as an overreach of federal elites. And and that certainly is, is yet another dimension to understanding the rise and fall of expertise and expert culture uh, within mid-century America. So I think 
think that that's something that I, I found really useful about the curriculum is that enables you to play uh, our usual actors, scientists, and and others like them against people who are typically not in our stories and really see how they also react to these ideas of expertise. And the second uh, aspect for, for people who have um, children in schools, for people who are interested in the math curriculum, is just how pervasive this idea that thinking mathematically, that learning mathematics is about good thinking. And we see this, of course, with debates about big data with this new idea of new mathematical models, but how rarely anyone takes the time to historicize the idea of mathematics, that mathematics has a history, that the whole idea that learning mathematics means learning to think has a history, and that oftentimes one of the best ways of critically engaging with claims about the, the necessity for mathematical models or the promise of mathematical models is to really ask about the history of those mathematical concepts and ideas themselves to see how they're rooted in specific transformations over the course of the last century or, or however long. Great. So Christopher, now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? Are there any projects that you are currently inspired by? I'm working on, on two different things at the moment. One, I'm working on a history of data as it's used in uh, more colloquial practices. So my example, uh, my main example is baseball and trying to show how the actual practice of data, the actual collection of data requires a huge infrastructure of people and technologies to create something that seems as timeless and ephemeral as a batting average. And so that, that's one, one way I'm working on is trying to really ground this idea of, of mathematical objectivity in a set of practices, techniques, and people. And then the other project I'm working on, uh, also in a kind of mid-century period like the new math, is, is a transformation in medicine, the increasing mathematization of medicine in a world in which causation has come to be, if not replaced by, certainly displaced by correlation in terms of how we think about uh, wellness and how we think about disease and illness and trying to understand why mathematics in a realm like medicine that was really one of the most resistant uh, of realms to mathematical practice uh, becomes dominant in our understanding of what it means to know disease and to know health. So that's what, what I'm working on right now. Great. Well, best of luck with those projects, both on behalf of myself and my cat. Um, who's very <laughs> interested. And thank you again um, for making time to talk with me. I'm really glad that we had a chance to do this and I really love the book. So congratulations and thanks again. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for listening as always, and we will see you soon.